You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone. Welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, my name is Van Dean. I'm president and co founder of Broadway Records, and I'm a producer. Uh, so far of 13 Broadway musicals and plays uh, with more in the works. Welcome, Van. I'm very I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Um, we have yet to really dive into cast albums and all, everything that goes behind the scenes there. And I know from my own personal experience how vital cast albums are to any musical theater fan out there, no matter, no matter the age, honestly, or the experience. I think the only time we brought up cast album recording was when we had Jess Paz on to talk about uh, her process, sound designing Town, And I just, she was the first sound designer that we had on the podcast. So I was interested to know if the sound designer was part of the recording, the cast recording process as well. And I think because cast albums are for so many of us, the first introduction that we have to Broadway or even off-Broadway musicals. So as we kind of said a little bit before off-air, we generally explore the careers um, of our guests and what it took to get them where they are today. And so I'm curious, just to kick things off, was was starting a, an award-winning record company always part of your plan? Was that something that you, like, were you interested in music production growing up? Very good question. I was started as a songwriter. And then when I went to uh, college at Syracuse University, took a lot of music industry classes as part of my greater you know, field of study. I was actually technically a television and film uh, production major, but I did take a lot of theater and I had a concentration in music composition. Uh, but I built a lot of music industry courses in there. So I knew a lot about the publishing side of things and how you know royalties work and how all the business side of things work. And I'd had my own 
small studio in my bedroom growing up. So I knew the production side of it. And uh, as a writer was producing my own demos and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, fast forward quite a few years later, uh, when I started producing Broadway shows, um, actually off Broadway first, because that's when my first album happened. Um, so I produced Rooms, A Rock Romance, off Broadway, New World Stages in 2009. I believe we had about 81 performance run. And it was, a, you know, the crash basically when everything was pretty, uh, pretty bad uh, economically. And we were competing against Broadway shows who were charging the same price as off-Broadway shows. And it was, uh, it was a challenge. So we only made it to 81 performances, but I knew that the show deserved uh, a much longer life. So, of course, that meant cast album because uh, that's really the, the best and almost only way for a show that has had a run to, to really get done in high schools and, and regional theaters and uh, you know, community theaters, et cetera, is for somebody to listen to the cast album and be inspired to, to do a production of it. Um, so with Rooms, that was my first time uh, getting involved with the cast recording. I worked with a specific album producer on that and saw the whole process, really quite liked the process, got involved in a couple more, uh, including How to Succeed with Daniel Radcliffe, executive produced that, worked on Fela, but only doing the art for that. So I actually wasn't involved on the the music end of that. But um, but those three really led me to want to do a lot more. But I knew to do it the way I would want to, I really needed to form my own label so that I could kind of be in control and make the choices of which projects to take on and and really kind of be in the driver's seat creatively and 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 from the business perspective along with the, the team that i was assembling to work with me so that's kind of the short version of how it came to be and then i was a producer on bonnie and clyde on broadway which lasted i think around two months and there was a deal in place for the cast recording to happen with a, a major label but that fell through when the uh the run was shorter and the reviews were maybe not as good as we would have liked. So I, together with my uh, then partner, uh, Kenny Howard and the team behind the show, we did a grassroots campaign to raise the money uh, to put the album together and came together pretty quickly. Everybody was really passionate about it. Nobody did it to, uh, to make money. They did it to preserve what we had all worked on together. And everyone was really passionate about that. And the wonderful news, it's actually one of our, still one of our stronger albums in terms of uh, sales and ultimately actually will recoup and make everybody's money back and then a, ultimately a profit, which yeah, I was, was going to say, I, I mean, <laughs> I listened to that cast album quite a bit, I will say. So I will take responsibility for or ownership over <laughs> a well, portion you. of those numbers. I mean, I wasn't able to see the show, but I feel like, I mean, especially with the shows that don't either have the you know, intended life it was meant to have on stage or what anyone would have hoped for, for any kind of run cast albums really fill that for so many fans and so many people um, who hope to do the show one day in some capacity. In that, same, in that same vein, I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to have grown up right outside, right outside of New York City. So I was always going to see shows when I was younger. Um, but for some people, all they get is that cast recording. Do you remember what were the cast recordings that you listened to at, on repeat when you were younger? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my tastes, of course, uh, evolved and expanded as I went along. But the first ones were uh, Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon, Les Miserables, uh, The Secret Garden. Those were kind of the first four that really drew me to the art form. And uh, shortly thereafter came Avita and Jesus Christ Superstar. And then I expanded into to Sondheim and others. Uh, you know, that I, I still am very passionate about today. Um, but in the case of Evita, it was full circle because I ultimately helped produce the uh, uh, Broadway revival with uh, Ricky Martin and Elena Roger. So that was one of those full circle moments that was very exciting. Um, but those were some of the first cast albums that I paid attention to. And it was really my sister, my older sister, I give credit for that because she's the one who had copies of those and let me listen to it and, you know, thought that I would enjoy it. And, uh, from there, I went to the library and took out every cast album I could, and then ultimately started buying every cast album I could. And uh, I interned at Angel Records. I forgot to mention that in the uh, how I came to to go where I went, uh, you know, professionally. But when I was twenty twenty one, I interned at Angel Records at the time that they were uh, doing Carousel and Passion, and uh, so I was actually at the recording session of Passion. Um, 
with Steven Sondheim and Phil Ramone and everybody. So that was one of my earlier introductions to that side of things and certainly was formative in, in my view of wanting to do that down the road. And uh, it was a number of years later that I actually started Broadway Records, but that was certainly a, a big step on the way. And mentioning Bonnie and Clyde earlier, that was the first album under Broadway Records. It wasn't originally supposed to be. It was actually supposed to be the How to Succeed EP with Nick Jonas. Uh, but when we when the deal on the Bonnie and Clyde album fell through with the major label, we stepped up, as I mentioned, did the grassroots campaign to fund it and decided that was now going to be our first album a little bit ahead of schedule. So we started the label earlier than we intended to, uh, only about four months earlier. So it wasn't a huge change, but it did give us an impetus to, to get everything going faster than we had anticipated. And uh, so we started officially Broader Records January 1st of 2012. And our first album came out in April of 2012, so four months later. Now we're actually quicker about turning albums around, but when it's your first where you're in charge of all aspects, you're, you're learning as you go. And the first year we only did about five releases, but in 2020 we had 49 and 2021 we had 36. So we've increased a lot since then, now that we know, you know the process and are, are much more adept at all aspects of, of, of making it happen. Yeah. And so, okay. So I wanted to actually ask you if you could walk us through kind of like the timeline of everything that happens. I know there's like a lot of things. Um, and I know that you guys are, have produced the Carolina Change cast album that... That I listened to way too much. <laughs> yeah, it's actually out and it's one, it's one of our ones we're most proud of. Brian and I actually saw that together um, pretty early on in in its run um and brian has since gone back to see it many 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 times so i mean i don't know if you want to use that as an example or if if there's another show or album you'd like to use an example but just maybe walk us through the process and break down um you know i guess the first question i have is do you guys approach shows and pitch them this is why you'd want to produce the album do producers come to you to have conversations now that you've been around for for many many years and have quite built up quite a, pro, a portfolio of work uh, it's actually both uh you know it, it happens either way um and in the case of carolina change we had been talking to roundabout over two years ago about it uh well before the pandemic started and then of course the pandemic changed plans like it did for so many things um so we were just in constant communication with them about when are things coming back what's the right timeline to make this work and of course coming back everyone had to re-rehearse so it 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 made it so they had other things to get done before we could really get into the album we would have loved to have recorded the album before performances started but that wasn't really possible because of all the things that had to happen and even getting you know the star uh from the uk to to new york was a challenge because during COVID, it travel you know obviously was uh even at that point now that we had the vaccine and everything it was still a challenge so so that was a little bit more tight of a schedule in fact i think we turned it around in about three weeks which was kind of crazy um because it's an enormous amount of music uh, about 100 minutes and uh, 53 tracks and in fact, uh, Carolina Change is so far the first and only recording we've ever recorded in a particular way, which is that we did it start to finish as a performance in the studio. Uh, there were breaks, and uh, but we ran it twice, and then we did some what are called pickups, where anything we wanted to give another go at, you know, then we would do after that. But so when you say three weeks from start to finish, does that mean from like the moment you guys hit the studio to when the album is out and released? Or is that from like start to finish of just recording? No, we recorded it in a day and a half and uh, mixed it, I think it was about two and a half to three weeks, and then mastered it in about a day, day and a half. And then it was out less than a week later. Uh, so the whole technical process was three weeks or so, and then another week to get it out uh, digitally. And then a few weeks later, the CD was out. So it was, although we've, we've even done faster than that, the Wiz Live we did in like two days of post-production, uh, but that's the fastest we've ever done and hopefully will ever do. But um, so that's, that's highly unusual. But in the case of Carolina Change, we wanted it out with a good month to go still in the run so that it would have a, a chance to be in the theater and for, for it to be there, you know, while the show was still running. Uh, and given that it was a limited run to begin with, that was a challenge to try to make that happen, but we did. And uh, 
we're very proud of that. But it was, as I said, uh, we did record it in order, you know, as a performance, which we've never really done before. Usually the way you construct these is uh, the project coordinator or someone from our team or working with the producer of the album will come up with a schedule that makes sense for not only, you know, how much you want to tax the vocals at what time in the morning, like if somebody's not a morning person or their vocals are stronger in the afternoon, you want the big number maybe to happen a little later. Uh, you also have to look at the fact that most of the time you only get eight hours with each actor because you're paying a week's salary for every eight hours in the studio. So unless you can afford to pay overtime, uh, then you try to keep it to eight hours per person. And in order to do that, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle about, okay, which song do we do when, because we have this person and if it would then, we would have this person on these set of songs and that would keep them for eight hours. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a jigsaw puzzle, combining it with the different performers to make sure you're not using anybody more than eight hours, unless you absolutely have no choice. And then you of course pay overtime and that's, that's fine. It's just the budgets of these albums are, anywhere from 200 on the low side to 400 or more on the high side. And that's, sorry, thousands of dollars. So 200,000 to $400,000 or more. Uh, so they're very expensive. And every hour you're in the studio could be $20,000 or more with all the people you have there. So that's why it's important to try to keep it to sc on schedule because you could be over budget by tens of thousands of dollars if you're not keeping a good schedule going. And we actually have quite a good track record of keeping things on schedule and on budget. It's very rare that we go over budget and we certainly do our very best to make sure that we don't. Um, so because of that, it's a very tight schedule and things have to run pretty much like clockwork. What are some of the things that might like push you off of schedule? Is it just like wanting to do it like more takes or get, you know, change microphones, like anything technical like that? Is that really what would push you off track? It's been a long time since we've been off schedule, but back in the early days, there were a couple of times we were in a studio where maybe the equipment was a little bit older and they had a, they had a buzz, for example, that was, and they had to figure out where's that buzz coming from, uh, which wire, you know, which device was causing it. And so there was a recording, I don't know, seven years ago that we lost a good hour, I think, uh, while the engineers tried to figure out where the buzz was coming from, because you certainly don't want to be recording the buzz in your, in the recording itself. So that was, uh, that's an example. Uh, you know, certainly there are cases where you may want to switch mics or uh, help the performer maybe get more comfortable. Like maybe the levels in their, their headphones aren't good. So you go in to, uh, uh, to switch it so that they have the right balance. Maybe they want to hear more piano or, or more of their co-star and less of the drums or the bass or, you know, whatever it may be um, in that particular case. But usually that doesn't take more than a few minutes. So that wouldn't really put us off schedule. Um, but there certainly can be technical issues or if we just want to do take after take because we're not getting it quite right, that can happen. But that's pretty rare because everybody are such pros and are so comfortable with what they do. And they've already done the show a bunch of times by the time they get to the studio. And now who's taking on the financial investment? Is it the producers or are you guys going in as well on the investment portion of the recording so that in the end of, you know, once it recoups, you'd be making back in excess? Uh, it's a very good question. And it, it varies. Uh, sometimes the producer comes to us and says, we've got all the funding. Other times we'll go to them and say, we'll split it with you or we'll, uh, we'll raise this amount. Um, you know, as a label, we might put something in, but I also will raise from investors as well. Um, you know, that I think would be attractive to this particular project. The way I tend to work is I'm not comfortable raising money unless I think it's going to make a profit. And most of the time that I do raise money, it does because I only pick those projects to raise money for that I think have a really good chance um, of making a profit because the reality is that investors aren't going to keep investing if they're not doing well with it. So I want to make sure they're having a good track record uh, with us. So it's a, you know, it's a balance, but, you know, and obviously you don't have a crystal ball. You don't always know when it's going to make money, but having done so many of these, you have a pretty good sense of, well, this one will make money and this one might be more of an artistic, you know, labor of love. And you may get a few investors because they really believe in it, even though they know in this particular instance, they might not make their money back. Um, but certainly most of the time we do make a profit. It may take a number of years, but eventually it gets there in some cases faster than others. Um, but certainly that it is a business, 
it's a business to preserve an art form. So we certainly have the altruistic uh, intention of trying to preserve as much as we can. And we believe that everything that makes it to Broadway deserves to be preserved. It may not always be financially possible, but we try in every case. Um, and obviously we have other, there are other labels in the industry that are in there as well. So it's not all on us. Uh, there's, you know, Ghostlight and Sony and Atlantic and Concord, you know, that are all in, in that space as well. So I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but what is it? They say eight in ten, eight out of ten Broadway musicals don't actually recoup their investments. About twenty percent, I think. Right. Yeah, so, that's, yeah. that's pretty accurate. So, like, if for a cast album, what does that track record look like? It would probably depend on the time period. I mean, our track record is probably quite a bit better than eight out of ten. As an industry, I'm not sure because again, we only raise money for those that we think will do well financially, but we'll still absolutely release something that maybe is more of an artistic endeavor, less of a commercial one, but we won't be able to raise money for it unless the investors are, are willing to do it just because they love it. And uh, there are cases where that happens, certainly, and obviously with Broadway shows as well. And certainly investors know that, or at least the season ones know that four out of five don't recoup. And so they have a only a 20% chance of making a profit. And they know that going in. At least statistically speaking, obviously the shows that they choose to invest in may have a better chance because they're they're handicapping it with whatever they think that the reasons are for choosing that particular project. But I didn't haven't actually run the exact percentages, but I think for us, out of the Broadway cast albums we've done, I think more than half uh, either have or will recoup. Um, I don't have an exact number on that. And I'm sure it's a little bit different too compared to like going to see the actual Broadway show because or off Broadway because, you know, cast albums live on forever. So like you were saying, you know, how long ago did Bonnie and Clyde close and it's still, you know, it ha you know, it ha has the ability to keep generating more income as time goes on um, versus, you know, a Broadway show could end, you know, Ultimately, you know, we we always hope that doesn't happen, but it, you know, realistically, it does. So you kind of lose that opportunity there. In that same vein, I'm wondering. So Bonnie and Clyde came out. I, I would before streaming was really, really prevalent. Would you say that streaming is the is the way people are mainly consuming these cast albums now? Oh, it's becoming a bigger and bigger percentage all the time. Uh, yeah, it's I think surpassing CDs at this point in terms of it, and that may sound strange because obviously uh, I'm sure there are a lot more people streaming than are buying CDs, but it's because you make, you know, a fraction of a penny, like four tenths of a penny basically per stream. So it takes a lot of streams, maybe 4,000 to equal one CD. So streaming is starting to be as strong as CDs and, and vinyl is also a big player these days when there is a vinyl edition. Um, but streaming is getting more and more uh, prevalent. Uh, the downside is it takes way more streams, like I said, to make any financial difference. Um, so if you hit it with streaming, you can really hit it. I mean, certainly Be More Chill and Six and out of our titles like Anastasia and Lightning Thief and others are really strong on streaming. But it takes a much higher threshold for it to make a, a difference to recouping than certainly CDs or vinyl or or digital albums. So um we still are trying to encourage all forms of uh, consuming our albums because, again, streaming just – it takes millions of, of listens for it to actually mean anything financially, uh, many, many millions, um, before it, it starts to make a dent in covering our costs that it took to actually make the album. So question about vinyl, since you brought it up. I've definitely noticed over the last at least five years, it feels like that – there, like a, a delayed release or even a, any release of a vinyl of a cast album is its own like campaign in a way of like marketing and it's very special. What do you think is the reasoning behind the excitement over releasing a vinyl for any cast album? Well, it's it's interesting because a lot of the vinyl consumers are actually quite young, you know, uh, in their 20s or, you know, and you wouldn't necessarily expect that. A lot of them skipped CDs and went back, you know, to vinyl. And I think that maybe it's because it's a keepsake and it's just something special to have. I don't even know if everybody who buys it actually has a vinyl player, you know, an L, you know, a record player, but or a decent um, one, <laughs> or a decent one. Yes, it's not actually so, going to uh, ruin your vinyl. Exactly. Um, so there's that. But 
I think it's there's a certain you know nostalgia for it. There's a certain attraction to it's a much bigger you know fold out. It's a, a bigger version of it. It's a, a real keepsake from the from it. It has a if you actually do listen to it, it has a warmer sound and um, it's definitely a, a different more you know physical sound. I think uh, CDs are a little more pristine. You know they're pretty perfect uh, and they're actually a much higher quality than most streaming. Uh, unless you have high def streaming and even then, you know, CDs are certainly, uh, among the higher fi of the options, but I think that the youth of today is maybe more interested in the convenience and the portability than they are in the high fi aspects. Although I'm hopeful that the higher definition streaming options that are starting to become available will become more prevalent so that everyone can hear the, the music the way it was intended and not, you know, in some loss-filled uh, format that doesn't give you that full experience because certainly the way they're recorded are extremely pristine and you know we want everyone to experience it as as high definition as possible so they can really enjoy th- the true nature of it so but when you're mastering or mixing a cast album is there a different process for you know for each um i'm trying to think of the word format yeah, so like CD versus streaming, is there a difference there? Like, are you doing anything different versus if you're trying to produce a vinyl? There are some differences. For vinyl, for example, we do a master specifically for vinyl because um, there are different frequencies that you're trying to, uh, you know, kind of focus on. Uh, I'm not a master engineer myself, but um, but I, you know, obviously work with the master engineers that, that we employ. And uh, it is a different process. Uh, there is also a made for iTunes uh, process that's more for like the 24-bit mastering. So there is, a, you know, a more high def mastering option. There's also, you know, the uh, the new formats like uh, Dolby Atmos, where it's like a more of a surround sound format. But that's not just mastering. In that case, it actually has to be mixed for that. And there are albums starting to be done that way. It's definitely more of a niche at the moment. There are not a lot of people who listen to Dolby Atmos, but I think that's going to become more and more available. And so there may be more people who want to hear that. And certainly theater lends itself to it in a way because then you can get more directional with your sound about who's where in the on the stage. And, you know, even though you're not recording on the stage, but you can try to mimic that uh, where the sound effects come from in terms of the space of the room and, and things like that. So there's definitely real potential there. Is that something that you're interested in uh, when you're listening to a cast album is is recreating the experience of being in the theater or more of making it and maybe this really varies depending uh, on you know whoever you're working with and whatever uh, sh- show you're recording for but are you interested in creating a recreation of being in the theater or just making it a really perfect version of that song I think to to some degree, it's really making a perfect version of that song. I mean, if you notice most of the time in theater, it it doesn't actually sound quite as pristine as the cast recording because you can't hear the nuance of every single instrument. You can't hear every maybe every last word. It's a extreme challenge, I think, in a large theatrical space to have everyone have the perfect uh, oral experience, whereas the, the cast recording, you have a lot more control over that. So you can make sure you know every last word is heard. Uh, for example, Matilda, the, uh, the the accents and the space might have made certain phrases or words harder to understand in the theater, but we made sure that on the recording you could understand every last word and um, and that the the accents still came through and you could you could you know really appreciate every last of Tim Minchin's brilliant lyrics because uh, there's a lot to be mined there. Um, so I I think it's trying to create the perfect experience. And there, I think with Dolby Atmos, it does maybe give uh, the possibility of doing both. Ultimately, I think it's going to be a while before all cast recordings are available that way, because it is uh, a complete remix uh, of the whole process. So it's, it's a lot, a lot. And there has to be, I think enough demand and interest in that for it to be worth doing yet another mix that might cost several tens of thousands of dollars in addition to what we're already doing to create Taking Matilda and Caroline or Change uh, as two great examples that already had cast recordings before you worked on them, um, the London recording of Matilda and the original Broadway cast of Caroline or Change, 
when you're working with that creative team, do they have specific goals or did they in these specific cases going into this next version of what's going to be preserved of their music? Well, I think in the case of Matilda, I was actually the one who made the case for why there should be another recording. Because uh, if you look historically, it's not that common that if you have a London recording, you also have a Broadway recording. It certainly has happened in history, but it's it's pretty pretty rare, even for some of the biggest uh, musicals. Um, so in that case, I really kind of analyzed the situation and said, well, what has happened since then to the show that would justify this? And if you look in the case of Matilda, it was actually recorded before the West End. It was out of town. And the show had evolved a bit. Uh, the orchestrations were thicker and more you know, precise uh, for Broadway and for the West End because West End happened after. And yes, we had two of the same stars. So that was something else that we had to look at because it is a little rare that you have a cast recording in both London and Broadway and you have two of the same leads. Um, but in our case, if you, I actually think it's pretty fascinating because if you look at uh, Bertie Carvel's performance in the first recording and then you look at it two years later, how often do you get that chance to have somebody who so so unbelievably brilliant in a role and look at it when he first started and then two years later how much nuance he added after living in it for two years you almost never get that kind of luxury to have a performance that's that lived in and that in depth and its nuance and even though he's brilliant in the first recording he's even more brilliant in the second uh and to me it it's almost like a master class in acting to look at you know what he did with it after living in it for so long and that was one of the many things that attracted me to the idea of doing it, uh, even though it had already been done. You know, again, as I said, the orchestrations were, you know, were deepened and, and expanded. There was also material that was not captured in the first recording. A number of musical moments. Uh, none of the story songs were caught, captured in the original album. And I made the pitch for doing that. There was a little bit of an artistic discussion. Well, if we do that, is it breaking up the, the score too much? to have these story songs, which are mostly, you know, telling stories and talking uh, in the middle of a, a, a wonderful score. And so we kind of came up with a compromise. Well, what if we make them bonus tracks? And so we did that, but we captured all those. And quite gratifyingly, when I spoke with uh, some of the Matildas later on, like the second and third set of Matildas, uh, they all said, oh, I listened to the cast album religiously before I auditioned. And I knew how to do the story songs and it meant so much to me to hear it. Whereas if you just had the London recording, you wouldn't have had that ability. Like, how would you have auditioned for the the story elements of the of the cast? Because you wouldn't know it. And so for them, it really attracted them to wanting to audition for the show. So it was kind of a, a full circle element to it. So, I mean, there, there were a lot of reasons for wanting to do it. And then I tried to make the case for it. And ultimately, it, it did well, both artistically and financially. And so I think it yeah, we did make the case and it was successful for all the reasons we thought and, and more. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that one. That's, that was our first really large cast recording that we did of, of a major a Broadway show. And uh, we've done you know many since then, but that kind of changed the game for us. And it was one that I've always really had a very personal attachment to and we're thrilled that we could make the case for why it should exist. And then you asked about Carolina change. I'll do that more briefly. Um, so in talking to uh, Janine and Tony about it, originally we did ask the question, well, since there is a full recording, should we do maybe highlights? Because we wanted to capture the cast. But the question is, could we justify recording the entire show again when it already was so brilliantly done, you know, two decades earlier? And, you know, there was discussion about doing the highlights, but then ultimately everyone involved with it creatively just felt like, this cast is just so brilliant and it's such a wonderful show that maybe didn't get its due the first time that seemed to get more attention the second time and more understanding and respect that we just felt that this cat, this cast had to be captured in full and that performances were so brilliant and nuanced. And so we decided, okay, let's try to raise enough money to, to capture the whole thing because it, it deserves it. Um, so that's what we ultimately obviously did, but it was in, concert with uh you know talking to janine and tony and and roundabout and we all just ultimately felt like if we could afford to capture the whole thing if we can raise enough to do it we should because there's too much you know artistic merit there to to shortchange it with 
you know, a highlights recording. We, we really wanted to capture the whole thing because it's also really a song through a score, almost like an opera. While you could do a highlights version, I suppose, and we certainly, if we had to, we would have figured it out a way to do it. There are not a lot of moments that just stand on their own. They're all just so integrated with the rest of the score that it's a bit difficult not to capture the whole thing. And thank God you did. There are people <laughs> like you. me are <laughs> thanking you profusely. <laughs> well, thank you. So you've done artwork, designed artwork for a bunch of these albums that you've worked on. What is that process like for you? And what are those conversations like with the team going into that? Oh, first of all, I absolutely adore that part of it. And I did most of our first 40 titles. Uh, uh, I think one of the last ones I did was Anastasia. Uh, even though at that point we had hired Robbie Roselle to take over for me uh, on doing the package design, I had a personal attachment to Anastasia, so I really wanted to do it. And that ended up being one of the, the last ones that I've done. Um, I did help a little bit with Starry because my wife actually designed that one. So I did help a little bit, but uh, it became one of those things where I was so busy running the company that, and had kind of overseeing everything that I just didn't have the time to do it anymore because it is quite time consuming. Something that I is immensely artistically fulfilling and I, I love doing, but you know, it's one of the hard parts of be, about being the founder is you wear tons of hats and then over time, you have to give up some of those hats because that's that's what growth is, you know. Um, when you when the label's growing, you can't do everything anymore. Um, but luckily, I found Robbie, who's absolutely brilliant, to to take over and and run with it. And he's done now about two hundred for us, so um, so he's he's done it incredibly well. But as far as the process, I know when I did it, and I think it's similar for Robbie. Uh, ideally, you get to see the show and something about it inspires how you approach it. Uh, in the case of Matilda, I used, you know, the, the, the kids building blocks. I did, I made all the song titles that had each of the lyric sections out of those. It was pretty painstaking too. It took a long time to like, you know, kind of mimic that with the font, like over the, the building block and to do it for each letter. Um, but that was kind of the concept I had. I also, the original London recording really didn't have any photos from the show. And I felt like there's such a, brilliant story here and the, the visual elements of, of Matilda are so incredible that we needed to to convey that to the kids and everybody else who were listening to this recording to show them what the show is like. Also, I tried to tell a bit of the story with it, like in the case of Matilda again, because you have the story song, which for those who know that, it actually uses the alphabet within the lyrics and so incredibly brilliantly, where Tim mentioned wrote it that every letter of the the British alphabet, which obviously is the same as ours, but but you do where use you name them a little bit differently. Like Z is is Z, you know, in the case of uh, the British alphabet, but obviously it looks the same. Um, so what I ended up doing is I made the letters behind each of those elements of the lyrics glow. Uh, so it's kind of got a, a light, a light, and obviously it's not truly glowing, but it's got a brightness to it so that if you're paying attention, you can actually see how the alphabet is spelled out within the lyrics because I made um, you know, the letters actually glow um, behind, you know, visually. So that if you're kind of paying attention to the lyrics, you'll see that the, the story of the alphabet's actually told visually as well. Because I realize if you're not seeing the show and you're just listening to the album, you may, you, you may not realize that what Tim mentioned is doing in that song. Um, and then we try to include as much as possible in what we as fans would want to get out of it. Certainly as many photos as we can fit in when we can, you know, including the lyrics when it makes sense to, in some cases, if it's the third or fourth revival, maybe we won't include the lyrics because there's other versions that have it. Uh, but most of the time we do try to have the synopsis that shows how the songs fit within it. Ideally a liner note to give context. Um, obviously all the credits, we want all the amazing artists to be, you know, given credit. You know, and just visually, like I said, trying to represent the show in a way that makes sense for that show. So everyone is different because ideally you're you're doing something that's in the character of the show. And and again, uh, you know, Matilda's maybe one of the best examples of the ones that I personally did. But, you know, certainly uh, Anastasia is one of my favorites that I did because I think visually uh, it really tells a story. And I just love those photos. And so I, I try to also tell the story there. Um you know, with the way that I laid it out, but that's, you know, the goal of what you're trying to accomplish. I was going to ask you what your favorite part of your process is 
and it sounds like this is it. Is there something else maybe that, that you really, really enjoy about about Broadway Records and about your process of producing cast albums? Well, that was certainly one of them, especially while I was doing it. Um, now that I don't have the time, unfortunately, because it takes it took me probably 20 to 40 hours to do it, say, a Broadway cast recording to design it uh, with everything involved, with collecting everything and laying out the lyrics and doing everything that's involved. And I just unfortunately don't have that luxury of time to spend that much, especially when we're doing you know anywhere from 20 to 50 albums in a year. There's no way that I could do that because it's a full-time job, as Robbie can attest to. So that was certainly one of my favorites. But I think just working with the artist and, and making you know, their dreams a reality to preserve what they've created. Because as, as absolutely incredible as it is to have the album on stage, uh, sorry, the musical on stage, that is a moment in time. And unless you're there in that moment in time to have that experience, you can't experience that unless you have the cast recording. So this is the, this is the piece that lives on. So it's a critical piece for the show to be done and to have a life after it's Broadway or off Broadway run. Uh, it's essential. So knowing that we're a part of making that a reality and working with the artists that I so greatly admire, I think, you know, we certainly get great satisfaction out of that. And I know we didn't really get to talk about this too much, but I, but I just want to state for the record, if you will, that, that Broadway records actually produces solo albums as well, not just Broadway or even off Broadway cast albums. And so I know we're, we're going to head into our next lightning round section, but I just wanted to real quick ask, is the process for those albums? I know you've produced, I've worked on a few names, Kate Rockwell, Patty Murin, Jessica Voss, just to name a few of the complete library that you guys have. Is the process for producing those albums, is it similar to producing a cast album? I mean, I know like the scale might be a big difference um, in terms of just number of people involved potentially. Surely the production value I'm, I'm sure is is the same, but is there anything that's that's drastically different between those two? process is fairly different i mean a lot of our solo albums are live albums because we created the live at feinstein's 54 below series uh, in conjunction with 54 below and um so those it's a matter of how you can best capture and then handle the post-production of that performance and try to make someone feel like they're there and um so that that's more when we are involved before they do the show we we talk about song selection and what makes the most sense in terms of even from a business standpoint like getting the rights to the songs if you have a medley with 10 songs that's in it that's going to be very expensive and you might want to avoid that if you're thinking to do a, a live album or even a studio album because you're going to spend a lot of your the sales proceeds and paying for those rights um so i mean it's simple maybe mundane details like that but they're important but whoever's directing the uh the performance if it is a live album will be working with the artists and trying to tell a story and uh, have an arc to it. Robbie Roselle himself has directed a lot of those um, for major artists, including, you know, Kate Baldwin, uh, Melissa Erico, among others. So it's certainly, we come in at different points. We may come in early and therefore have some input in the, the song selection, or we may come when it's already done. Uh, they've already created their show and they just need to have it preserved. Then we just make sure that all the miking is set up the way, you know, the best way possible, make sure there's enough separation so that it can be post-production work can be done on it because um, everything's recorded multi-tracked at 54 below when there is an album to be made so that you can do post-production work on it. If it's a studio album, then obviously that's a bit different because you're not capturing a live performance. And unlike a cast recording where you need to get it done in a day, day and a half uh, because of the economics of it, a solo album could be done over weeks or months, you know, depending on what the needs are and, and that's fine. Um, so it is a bit of a different process that way. There's also kind of the middle ground, which is studio cast recordings or concept recordings, which is the fourth category. And those are kind of in the middle of all that, of how those are done, where they can be, they don't need to be done necessarily in a day, although they can be. Um, so they're kind of like solo albums that way, but they're aesthetically a little bit more like a cast recording, but certainly a lot cheaper to do. So there's there's a lot of different elements to consider, and that's probably a whole longer conversation, but that's the short version. Um, Mary, do you want to move into our lightning round? Yes. Our first question is, what is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? I don't know if so much confuses me, but obviously everyone has different tastes. I mean, there's certainly some shows that you wonder, you know, the perspective on it or, or whatever. But I mean, 
for the most part, what makes it to Broadway ends up being something that obviously whoever's behind it hopes that the masses will will uh, respond to and want to see. Certainly, there are some shows here and there that maybe you you wonder why it took the path to Broadway. Maybe it should have gone off Broadway, or maybe it should have gone direct to licensing, or um, or that sort of thing. But but obviously, uh, the world is filled with all kinds of perspectives and opinions, and that's what makes it beautiful. So um, everyone has their own perspective on it. Something that I, I might say, well, I wonder why that went to Broadway or what you know what the purpose of that was. Maybe somebody else will think is truly brilliant. And uh, so I think I, I think that's the beauty of uh, of art. The art form is that everyone has their own perspective. What are three adjectives that describe your ideal working environment? Friendly, respectful, full of passion for the work. And is there something in your process that you find unique to you? I don't know if it's unique, but I actually was a programmer in my former career. And uh, so I definitely have an analytical view in addition to the artistic view, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, I did start as a songwriter and I've written musicals as well. So I kind of have both sides, you know, I like to use both sides of my mind and uh, both the analytical and logical side, as well as the artistic and passionate side. So I do like to use all aspects of who I am and, you know, in the way I approach things. So maybe that's slightly unique because I doubt there are too many other computer programmers who are, you know, running uh, labels or producing albums or producing shows. What is one job in the theater industry that you would trade jobs with for one week? Well, writing musicals, since uh, I have done that, but not at the level of, you know, that I'm now working in as a producer. But uh, I would love to, you know, have a, a musical that I wrote on Broadway. Are there any books or resources that you find helpful to you in your process? Uh, there are tons. I'm actually a firm believer in really knowing your craft before you enter it. Uh, before I entered this profession, I'd read probably well over a hundred books on theater, everything from biographies and memoirs to histories of the theater. Like Ethan Morden, for example, has a series. I don't know if you've seen it of musicals of the twenties and the thirties and the forties and et cetera. And so each book just hit one decade. So because of that, he was able to get really in depth, which I found fascinating. So whenever I approach anything, I kind of all in. So I want to know everything about it. And on a practical matter, I found it was really helpful because as I started working with the giants of the industry that I always looked up to, it it could be a little nerve wracking being in you know same conversation with somebody like that, but knowing your history and really knowing the craft and understanding it, I think helps you have a conversation, you know, almost as if you're you know two equals speaking. That somebody who you know you want to be able to speak on that level where you know what you're talking about and, you know, cause I would never want to, you know, be at a lack of uh, perspective or things to be able to say about it. I want to have that background and I want to approach something knowing everything I possibly can about its history and it's what it is to work in that profession before I actually go all in. What is one hobby you have outside of the theater? Well, one of them is kind of related, as I mentioned before, is the uh, the design element. Uh, I did combine it in that I designed many of our early recordings, but certainly uh, that aspect. And of course, as I also mentioned earlier with songwriting, uh, I do still enjoy, although I don't have time to do it as much as I used to, but um, writing, you know, lyrics and music and, and I wish I had the time to write more musicals. Uh, I used to uh, write a few back in the day, but that's such a, a time commitment that at the moment I'm too busy producing and and uh, to be able to do that more, but would love to have that luxury to be able to do that again. And then our final question is, what's the last great piece of theater that you saw? Very good question. Uh, there's actually a few, of course, Carolina Change, definitely being one of them, um, which I know we probably all agree on that. Actually, Lehman Trilogy as a play, I thought was pretty brilliant too. One of the strongest plays I had seen uh, recently uh and uh the inheritance was also uh really brilliant um on the play side you know uh and then there's some just like six that's just a ton of fun and really brilliant and uh in how it's crafted in terms especially the songs i mean it's probably one of the greatest earworms of a, a recent musical that i can can imagine 
what is the next rec- recording that you guys are releasing at Broadway Records? Well, Assassins, which I'm really excited oh, about. Right. Oh, yeah, I heard awesome. about that. Yes. Uh, and, and that one, uh, actually, to come back full circle to your early question about sound designers, uh, the sound designer of Assassins, uh, Matt Stein, is the producer of the album. And uh, he's he's really brilliant. It's our first time working together, but definitely there'll be many more, I'm sure. Um, but it's it doesn't always go together. Like sound designers aren't always, uh, you know, natural album producers because it is a very different skill. Uh, but it certainly has certain foundational skills that are in common. And if somebody has that passion and that musical background, uh, like Matt does, I think it can it can work brilliantly because he already knew the show intimately, and uh, of course knew the sound design elements of it to be able to try to recreate the, the feeling of it. But that's one of the few instances that I can think of that we've worked with a sound designer also as an album producer, but when that is possible and they have that affinity and ability, it it can work pretty, pretty brilliantly as it is in this case. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking with us today. This was one of those conversations that I feel like I just have more questions about now, (laughs) you know, I just want to talk to more people. Yeah. I just want to talk to more people that do what you do, that you work with, um, that, you know, are working together to keep the art form alive, which I, I think is one of the greatest things about for me about doing this podcast. So thank you so yeah. much. That's truly my pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of page to stage to keep up with us. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at page to stage podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it. If you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.